Glad it's always a real joy for us to come down and to share time with you. Let me invite you to turn, if you would please, to the first epistle of John and the fifth chapter. The first epistle of John and the fifth chapter. Just reading a few verses, uh, beginning at verse 9, reading through to verse 15. First epistle of John, chapter 5, and verse 9. John writes, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Well, may God bless his word to our hearts this evening. A little while back, I was quietly reading a book, and I was approached by an American who was also reading a book, and he began by saying, uh, excuse me, sir, you look like an intelligent person. Well, looks can be deceiving. Uh, but he then pointed to a word in the book that he was reading and asked, what is this? And the word was Gnosticism. Now, he could have asked me about thousands of things, and I would clearly have shown that I wasn't as intelligent as he presumed. But actually, I did know the answer to that question. Gnosticism was a heresy of the second and third century. It was just beginning to raise its ugly head when John was writing this epistle. He's writing to believers whose assurance of salvation in Christ is being shaken by a variety of heresies, including an early form of Gnosticism. Now, the Gnostics and their title comes from the Greek word for to know, believe that everything physical was the product of an evil power. They maintained that the body, being physical, was evil. And the spirit, which is good, is imprisoned within the body. And to them, the essence of salvation is the release of the spirit from its bondage. And that was achieved through knowledge. But only they had the knowledge. And so Gnosticism became something of a secret society. And its proponents placed themselves at a superior level to other believers because of this professed knowledge that they had. Now that's one of the reasons why John uses the word know, K-N-O-W, 
on 39 occasions in this letter and eight times in this last chapter. He's encouraging his children in the faith that they are the ones who in fact have the true knowledge. George Goodman wrote a book on the first letter of John which he called The Epistle of Eternal Life. And I believe that that's a good description of this letter. Because although for the reasons that I've already stated, a case could be made for the word know, K-N-O-W, being the key word in this epistle, actually a better case is made for the word life being a key word in this epistle. Look at verse 10. John says, anyone who does not believe the testimony of God concerning his son, and let me just interject and say that would certainly include the Gnostics as it includes all false religions today. Anyone who does not believe the testimony of God concerning his son, any who adopt that position would in fact, says John, be suggesting that God is a liar. And then in verse 11 he says this, and this is the testimony that God has borne to his son. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Now let me state immediately that the Gnostics eliminated themselves from any hope of eternal life because they rejected the one in whom eternal life resides, that is, Jesus Christ. And why had they done that? For the reason that I stated earlier. All of them believe that matter, that which was physical, is evil. Therefore, it was impossible for the Gnostics to believe in a real incarnation, that God took human flesh. Now, you and I here this evening may not have very much in common, but ultimately what we do have in common as true believers is eternal life. And we have that simply because each of us possesses Christ. When we experience fellowship with God in Christ by personal faith, then inevitably we have fellowship with each other. Paul tells us very clearly, doesn't he? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now there are distinctions, and there are still Jews, and there are still Greeks, slave and free and so on. Yes, they exist. But what Paul is saying is, these distinctions become irrelevant in Jesus Christ. And so John's definitive purpose in writing this epistle is stated, I believe, in verse 13 of our reading. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now that is the very first certainty here in this chapter. But I want us to come to a second certainty that you and I can enjoy as Christian believers. John tells us something else that we know. It's the certainty of answered prayer. The certainty of answered prayer. Verse 14. 
This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, now, maybe that doesn't raise too many questions. He hears us. We believe that. But is the fact that God hears our prayers, is that a guarantee of an answer? Now, we'll need to come back to this fact of God hearing our prayers in a moment or so. But John continues in verse 15, And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, maybe that's something that we're not quite so sure of. Guaranteed answered prayer. But that's the promise. Now, what I want us to look at uh, this evening are these particular headings. Firstly, the privilege of answered prayer, and then the promise of answered prayer, and then thirdly, the provisos for answered prayer. And firstly, the privilege of answered prayer. Every one of us as Christian believers extol the privilege of prayer. And yet, isn't it true that there are few subjects in the Christian life that are more puzzling to God's people than prayer? On the surface, we might think that prayer should be the most natural and the most uncomplicated part of the Christian life. What should be more natural than for me as a child of God to address my heavenly father. James Montgomery in his hymn on prayer puts it in this way. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air. In another verse he writes, prayer is the soul's sincere desire, uttered or unexpressed. In another verse, prayer is the burden of a sigh, the falling of a tear. And in another verse, prayer is the simplest form of speech that infant lips can try. Yes, prayer is natural in these ways. And yet, there are so many questions in relation to the practice of prayer. In other words, does prayer change things? Do we actually change things by our prayers? Or rather, does prayer change the person who is praying? How should we pray? The disciples had to ask that question of their master. What should we pray for? Can we be sure that God always hears our prayers? Can I be confident that God will answer my prayers? I believe that many of these questions are answered in these verses here in 1 John. So, we have seen John assuring his readers of the fact that they have eternal life, verse 13. But you and I do not have the full expression of that until we go to glory. Meanwhile, with all of the concerns and the struggles and the battles and the temptations that we have to deal with, John says, look, I want you to know God answers your prayers. Now, the word confidence in verse 14, it's the word for assurance, appears three times in this epistle. Twice it is used in reference to the Christian's confidence before God in view of the final judgment. That's chapter 2 and verse 28 and chapter 4 and verse 17. 
But on one other occasion, in chapter 3 and verses 21 and 22, in addition to the verse that we're looking at, it refers to the Christian's confidence in relation to prayer. In other words, the Christian does not need to fear that God will refuse to hear and to answer him when he or she prays, John says. In fact, this confidence is actually a product of knowing that I'm a true child of God. It's proof of that fact, that I can come with confidence, knowing that God will hear my prayer and knowing that God will answer my prayer. Let me just uh, say at this particular point that throughout this entire epistle, John is setting forth various tests to know whether a person really is, truly is, a child of God. There's the obedience test earlier in the epistle. There's the love test in the epistle. There's the hope test in the epistle. And now this can be viewed as another test. And he's doing that for a very good reason. Those who are true believers will be able to tick all of those boxes. Those who are not true believers, but who profess Christianity, including those Gnostics, they will not be able to tick any of these boxes. You see, right at the beginning of this letter, John talks about sin and says, anyone who says he has not sinned is a liar. Now, these people say sin doesn't matter. What really matters is knowledge of God, this superior knowledge that you have of God. And then you can go on and live as you like. So true Christians will say, yeah, I recognize that as a true and a fair test, but the Gnostic won't be able to do that. And this is one of those tests, this confidence in prayer. That's the point that John is making, that we know we have confidence when we come before God in prayer that he will hear and answer our prayers. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. So our confidence is not only in the life to come. Our confidence is in the here and now that you and I have access to God. That we haven't entered into our eternal inheritance that's laid up for us. But we do have access to God's resources through the means of prayer. And that's why John says literally, this is the boldness by which we come before God and freely ask for whatever we need. Well, now notice that John says, this is the confidence we have. Who are the we? Well, this is verse 14, which follows verse 13. And what did he say in verse 13? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have. He's writing to those who have and who know they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, there's an important distinction here. You see, the world in which you and I live is filled with people who pray to God. And they pray to God in various crises in their lives. But they have no assurance that God is going to hear and to answer their prayers. And if they don't know God, 
through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm suggesting to you this evening that God is under no obligation to answer their prayers. Does God ever answer the prayer of an unregenerate person? Well, of course, he answers the sinner's prayer for salvation, for mercy, and for grace. But does God ever answer just the general prayers of unbelievers? And I believe that the answer to that must be that he may choose to, but that he's not obligated to. He may choose to because he is God, and he can do in that sense whatever he wants. It may suit his purpose to hear some prayer from an unbeliever, but surely God is under no obligation to answer that prayer. Indeed, there are indications in Scripture to the effect that he definitely will not hear. Job 35, verses 12 and 13. He does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. And if that is true, that is tragic. All of the people in all of the false religions of the world all of the people in all of the false systems of Christianity in the world who endlessly offer up prayers to God that perhaps God has no intention and certainly no obligation to answer. All the prayers about family and health and children and jobs and crises. All of the prayers about life and death matters. All the prayers that go up at events from political events to national events. All of the prayers that go up every day in various venues at various times and places, some official, some unofficial, by all the unregenerate of the world, and God is under no obligation to answer any of them. Now you may ask me, well, are you really sure about that? Well. I've given you uh, one verse or two verses already. Let me just give you two more. Isaiah 1.15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Isaiah 59, verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And so I believe that these verses more than suggest that God is under no obligation to listen to the prayers of unbelievers. Now, my friend, here is the contrast. When a believer prays in the name of Christ and according to his will, God has obligated himself to answer. What a privilege. This is the confidence we have, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The privilege of prayer. Well, let's move on and look at the promise of answered prayer. John expresses our assurance in these words. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. 
at first sight, those verses suggest that there are two elements to our prayers. There is the hearing of prayer, and then there is the answering of prayer. But I did say that we'd come back to this because it's not quite as straightforward as we might at first think. You see, when the Bible speaks of God hearing prayer, it means at least in the great majority of cases that God answers prayer. Not simply that God hears in the sense that he hears audibly that prayer and then there is a second element to it that he answers that prayer. No. On a number of occasions in Scripture, individuals and the nation asked that God would hear their prayer. And they meant more than the fact that God might just simply listen to what they were saying. Implicit in their request that God might hear is their confidence that God would answer. And if you needed further confirmation of that, my guess is that many of you have used the little phrase, when a prayer has been wonderfully answered, you have used the phrase, God heard my prayer. You don't mean that he simply heard it audibly. You mean God answered prayer. I believe that's what is meant here. So if that's the case, then the first part of the promise in verse 14, whatever we ask according to his will, he hears us, actually means that God hears in the biblical sense that he answers. So if that's the case, then what does the second part mean? Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Is that simply repetition? I believe it's more. I believe that that phrase introduces an entirely new idea. Because the promise, you see, is not simply that God answers our prayer. But that because he answers our prayer, that is, he hears our prayer, we have the requests that we ask of him, and we have them now. See, the Greek for the verb have here is in the present tense. And I think the meaning is clear from the sentence. We know that we have, present tense, what we asked of him. Consequently, the promise, therefore, is not simply that we will have them, but that we have the answer even as we pray. And let me add very quickly, the evidence of an answered prayer may not always be there at that moment in time. You may not see the answer in that instant, but the assurance that your prayer has been heard and has been answered is here within these verses. To put it very bluntly, as we pray to God and bring our requests to him, God does not put our requests on a to-do list that he will get around to dealing with at some point in the future. Hearing implies answering as far as God is concerned. Well, now we need to ask, how could John justify saying such an extraordinary thing? What could possibly give John that kind of confidence? We know that we have 
what we asked of him. Well, I think John is able to express his assurance in that fact because I believe he remembers what Jesus said to him. And we know that John remembers it because he records it in his gospel. Now just listen to these verses in John's gospel. Jesus said, John 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. John 15, 7, Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. John 15 again, verse 16, the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. John 16, verse 24, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. And so I'm suggesting to you that our Lord's words to his disciples, including John, must be the basis for John's assurance here in this epistle. And this really is staggering. What astounding confidence this is that while we wait for the full redemption of our body, while we wait for the next life, while we wait for all that God has prepared for those that love him, we have the confidence that in the meantime, God will hear and answer our prayers. John is telling us both in his gospel and epistle the wonderful promise attached to the believer's prayer. If we ask anything, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. An amazing promise. Now just notice incidentally that this is not the only occasion in this epistle where John promises answers to prayer. And I've made reference to this other verse a little while back. Chapter 3 and verse 21 and 22. We have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. The promise of answered prayer. Now, before someone jumps on me, let me admit that I haven't quoted those verses in full. And so that brings us to our third point, the provisos for answered prayer. The promise of answered prayer comes from a God who is truth, a God who does not lie. And so we can certainly trust him. There are no limits to the promise. Anything, he says, whatever. But there are conditions. And John makes these clear. It will be a nonsense to suggest that the Christian is to suppose that God will grant just anything that he or she might happen to pray for, however foolish or however sinful it must be, just because he or she as a believer prays for it. Obviously, that isn't the case. The prerequisite is that the Christian must pray according to God's will. But that should never be regarded as a limitation. Do you want anything different to that? In prayer, the Christian can be absolutely certain that God hears and answers his requests 
to whatever he asks, but with this qualification, that he prays not according to his own sinful desires or his wishes, but rather according to what an all-wise and infinite and holy God desires. Now let me give you an illustration from the New Testament of this confidence in prayer. And it actually comes from our Lord Jesus himself. John chapter 11 records the occasion when Jesus was called to Bethany because Lazarus was sick. And we know that Lazarus died before Jesus arrived. In confidence, Jesus asked that the stone across the entrance to the tomb be removed. And then after that was done, Jesus spoke to his father. Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. The faith of the Lord Jesus Christ was a perfect and totally trusting faith. And that is indicated by the fact that Jesus offers to God thanks for the miracle even before it has taken place. And we find him praying, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. He could say that because his will and his Father's will were always in perfect accord. Now think again of those promises of answered prayer Jesus made to his disciples recorded in John's gospel chapters 14 15 and 16 and one of the keys to understanding those promises is found in the repeated phrase in my name Jesus said I will do whatever you ask in my name you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it the father will give you whatever you ask in my name until now you've not asked for anything in my name ask and you will receive well you and I conclude many of our prayers with similar words don't we we ask this in Jesus name but, but what does it mean to say that I'm praying in Jesus name doesn't mean that at the end of a prayer I simply add those words and that makes everything okay that isn't it. If you do put it at the end of the prayer, I think that's fine. I often do that. But it is not some guarantee statement that now places an obligation on God to act. Rather, by adding a similar phrase, we're saying, would the answer to this prayer, as I have presented it, would it glorify Christ? And that says a great deal, of course, about the nature of prayer. I'm sure if we went out onto the street and asked people what they thought prayer was, they would think of it uh, as primarily the means by which God's will is changed or at least broadened to include our desires, what we really need. True prayer is not so much getting God to pay attention to our requests. True prayer is getting our requests in line with the perfect and desirable will of God for us. C.H. Dodd writes, 
prayer rightly considered is not a device for employing the resources of omnipotence to fulfill our own desires, but it is a means by which our desires are redirected according to the mind of God and made into channels for the forces of his will. Is that the spirit of my prayers and your prayers? What are the motives behind our prayers? James has to say, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So what would be the right motive? Will the answer to this prayer glorify God the Father? Will this glorify the Son? Would the answer to this prayer be for my spiritual benefit? Those are some of the qualifying principles. And so we pray in Christ's name, identified with him. We pray in his will, wanting only that which would glorify the Father and produce real spiritual joy. And prayer then becomes the means by which the believer receives what God wants to give him or her. In our text, John clearly states this qualification. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And when we think of God's will, there are many requests that we can make of God without any hesitation because the Bible categorically tells us that prayer for these particular issues is the will of God. We're to pray for holiness, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're to pray for wisdom, James 1 and verse 5. We're to pray that God would send workers into the harvest field, Matthew 9. We're to pray for those in authority over us, 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, and so on. But what are those times when we're not sure what God's will is? We say, whatever your will is, Lord. And Paul tells us that even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's a reference to our supplications there in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us Jesus always lives to intercede for us. You ever held those two verses together? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Jesus always lives to intercede for us. What an assurance to have the Holy Spirit alongside to intercede for us and then to know that the Savior is also interceding at the right hand of God. Nor prayer is made on earth alone. The Holy Spirit pleads. And Jesus on the eternal throne for sinners intercedes. Just a word of caution as we come to a close. I read some of those verses from John 14, 15, and 16. And in one of those references in John 15, the words of Jesus are these. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. It's the same blank check. Ask whatever you wish and it shall be given you. 
if you remain in me. That is, if you and I walk according to the word of God. Obedience to Christ's word is a requirement for answered prayer. That other reference that I um, made um, uh, reference to in chapter 3 and verse uh, 21 and 22, John tells us we receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. This is just an amazing assortment of statements. But we cannot escape the clarity of what is promised, both in the Gospels and the Epistles. Whatever you ask, if you believe in Christ, if you remain in Christ, if his word remains in you, if your Christian life is manifest in obedience toward Christ and love toward others, then you can ask whatever you wish with the caveat that it's according to his will. And again I ask, would you want to ask for anything other than that? And in theory it's easy to say, no, I wouldn't. But sometimes we have to admit that maybe our circumstances or perhaps the circumstances of those that we love are not always what we would have asked for. What then? And it's in that situation that the trusting believer has to acknowledge that even those situations are part of the all things that work together for our good and God's glory. The safest and ultimately the most rewarding prayer is to say, your will be done. Trust him when dark doubts assail you. Trust him when your faith is small. Trust him when to simply trust him is the hardest thing of all. Trust him he is ever faithful. Trust him for his will is best. Trust him for the heart of Jesus is the only place of rest. The privilege of prayer. How would you and I cope without it? The promise of answered prayer. With what confidence you and I can approach God and make our requests known. And then the provisos for answered prayer. We pray with the sincere desire that our lives will be pleasing to him. And that our requests will always be according to his will. That hymn that I referred to at the beginning that James Montgomery wrote on the subject of prayer closes with these words. O thou by whom we come to God, the life, the truth, the way, the path of prayer thyself has trod. Lord, teach us how to pray. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we know that you want for us and for all your children what is best. And so we can pray and we can be assured of your answer. We pray that our prayers will always be spiritual prayers. Help us to understand that whatever happens to us, uh, even physically, is never really the issue except as you use it for our spiritual good. And so help us to pray for 
matters that deal with spiritual realities, knowing that you have promised that if we ask anything according to your will, you will hear it. Hear this prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.